welcome to the ninth episode of Tomorrow Never Knows, the podcast for people who like to hear us talk about women and history and politics. Um, I am Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And this episode is going to be about nostalgia, but particularly about imperial nostalgia, mm-hmm. which I always feel is a big thing in, in Britain over Christmas, which is what made us think of doing this early on in 2018. Yes. Um, what is imperial nostalgia, Charlotte? Um, so I think it's one of those things that means different things to different people, which is a classic historian's kind of cop-out answer. <laughs> I think generally when we talk about it, what we mean is a kind of social, um, a tendency kind of socially, culturally, politically to look back to the days of the British Empire with kind of longing through rose-tinted spectacles um, to kind of subscribe to a particular interpretation of Britain's imperial past and to have a sense that decolonisation and the end of empire was a kind of loss for Britain Mm. Um, and and this sort of sense in many aspects of British society, politics, culture that that this is something that people in Britain want to return to or Mm. or feel as a kind of loss. And I think it's probably important for people who aren't historians um, to point out that when we talk about nostalgia in this context, we don't... It's not just a kind of personal nostalgia for something that you've actually experienced. Um, In the same way that historians talk a lot about kind of memory, Mm. but they don't necessarily mean individual people's memories about things that have actually happened. It's more of a kind of collective consciousness. It's a a sort of... A sort of mutual imagination of the past, in a way. Why are we we interested in imperial nostalgia as historians? Emma, why are you interested in this? Well, it's... it's, I have a very... um, straight not very straightforward answer for it because I when I was an undergraduate history student a very recent immigrant from Sweden I consciously avoided everything that could have anything to do with uh, British Empire modules Mm -hmm. and I think maybe incorrectly because it was 15 years ago that I was an undergraduate but I think I was an undergraduate at Queen Mary and I think that they have a tendency of teaching it from a very critical perspective but Mm -hmm. I was just quite fed up with this I didn't really move to Britain because I thought Britain was a better country (laughs) which I think a lot of British people have a tendency of believing that immigrants come because we we think it's better than where we come from and uh, it's not you come here for other reasons most of us come here for other reasons um so I really avoided it because I feel like there is this great kind of unchallenged notion in Mm -hmm. the the consciousness of the people, the British people, that mm-hmm. the empire, first of all, wasn't as bad as other empires. Yeah. So there's a sort of comparison that that um, is incorrect and also impossible to make. Mm-hmm. Um, but after that, I have actually, as a, as a professional historian, I have taught modules on the on the history of the British Empire, mm-hmm. and it's very interesting to see how students respond to it because they also come from this kind of popular cultural notion of how the empire kind of spread Britain around the world but mm-hmm. also brought the um, brought you know the world back home to the a lot of students have have connections to empire history they might be migrants from from areas that the British Empire stretched to mm-hmm. it's as an immigrant and as a as a historian, it is a very interesting topic and it can be incredibly frustrating to mm. see how it continues to go very unchallenged. Some very deep-seated beliefs about British history and British identity that 
feel like they are very difficult to shift in the public mind. But you are more, you work much more on the British Empire than I do, British Empire history. And I actually, I work, some of what I work on is on this kind of question of nostalgia, this question of nostalgia as well, I think. I mean, so my work, I mean, you know, your work obviously has clear connections to imperial history in that you work on South Africa. Yeah. um, Which has a really interesting place within the British Empire Mm. and which has a really interesting place within British kind of imaginations of empire as well. Um, I don't think there's much connection in popular, popular kind of understanding of, you know, people understand that apartheid was a terrible thing, but they don't think about how apartheid was rooted in imperial culture. No, I think it's, it's a very good case study for how... It, it, like the abolish abolition of the slave trade, mm-hmm. apartheid kind of serves as this, I don't know, it's excuse maybe, mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. A, a kind of this a, a sign that the British Empire wasn't that bad, yes. but also that Britain has recovered from its past within yeah, empire and racism. I mean, I work on, so I work on Britain, I'm a historian of Britain um, and also of kind of imperial history. And my research specifically a lot of my research focuses on the Labour Party um, and on the connections between imperial history and kind of post-imperial history and particularly aid and development and so part of the reason I'm interested in imperial nostalgia is that my work more generally focuses on the connections between the empire and what came afterwards Mm. and nostalgia is one of those connections nostalgia is one of the ways that we are connected to our imperial past Mm. and then more generally the work that I do is often about Britain's own identity Britain's empire as a kind of post-imperial nation. I'm interested a lot in questions about class and identity, and there's lots of interesting kind of ways to think about who benefited from empire in Britain and the ways in which empire supported a class structure, the ways in which working middle and upper class peoples sort of benefited from it and interpreted the empire in different ways. Mm. Um, And I'm also really interested in kind of political uses of the past, yeah. So part of the work I do on the Labour Party is I'm really interested in how the Labour Party itself thinks about its own imperial history. Because mm. because I think people in Britain today tend to assume that the Labour Party was sort of broadly anti-empire. Mm. And that's certainly something that's that's had a bit of a resurgence with Jeremy Corbyn being elected as leader because he's often held up as being, you know, having been very critical of apartheid, for example, or having been kind of very sympathetic to Global South liberation movements. He's been involved in direct action against yes. sort of injustices and colonial legacies. Exactly. And in, which is very unusual. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And across all different... Or it didn't used to be that unusual among Labour in the 1980s, and a certain group of which Corbyn was one of. But, mm. And across different sort of spheres as well, so Latin America and Palestine and South Africa. and But there tends to be an assumption that the Labour Party itself is kind of anti-imperial, and that's either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on where you are on the political spectrum. But actually, you know, a lot of my work is about how Labour was very supportive of empire, um, how the Labour Party used imperialism and imperial policies in different ways. Um, So I'm interested kind of generally in in how the past gets into British politics. Yeah. Um, How does an understanding of history shape how people vote and engage with politicians and what what things we care about and and kind of more generally how does the past fit into our own understanding of ourselves as a nation yeah um so you know just i find it a very fascinating uh, disconnect between first of all you get um this is going to be an episode with lots of generalizations about Mm -hmm. british people um 
obviously not all British people, hashtag. Um, but <laughs> there's this really big disconnect between this. There's on one hand, there's a conversation about how Britain, how, how this is a sort of nation of island people mm-hmm. who are um, not really European, kind of disconnected and have built up this own kind of indigenous culture and political mm-hmm. landscape. And you often get hear about, you know, Parliament having been established in the 17th century. I don't know. Britain is the mother of Parliament. Yes. It's, it's a really clear tell that someone's about to say something stupid about politics. <laughs> and also you hear about the Magna Carta oh God, and, yes. you know. And then the, on next to that, and the, these are like two overlapping conversations, so it's mm-hmm. often the same people who talk about the island mentality who then will go on and talk about Britain as a world power. Mm-hmm. So I find that having kind of come to this topic from abroad <laughs> and from a, a country that doesn't have that tangible mm-hmm. a connection to a colonial past, um, at least not an overseas colonial past, mm-hmm. um, or a colonial past connected to as far away countries as, as Britain has. I mean, Sweden yeah. did have an empire. It was mostly around the Baltic Mm-hmm. Um, it went into I think the Charles Bridge in uh, Prague for instance is yeah. named after a Swedish king um, Sweden also had St. Bart's in mm-hmm. the Caribbean bought from the French sold to the back to the French but during the time that it was Swedish which is in the 19th century it was a slave trading port mm-hmm. um, Sweden has also colonised bits of Scandinavia that are now Sweden so mm-hmm. Swedish Lapland for instance which has an ind- indigenous uh, population called the Sami who have mm-hmm. been horrifically treated um, throughout Swedish history and are still kind of struggling in the way that many indigenous peoples around the world are. Um, I don't really have that, you know, the Sweden doesn't have that view of itself as being a post-colonial nation the way that yeah. Britain has a very clear idea about, you know, the British Navy ruling the waves. You get like the kind of Britannia, mm-hmm. all of the kind of popular culture that came out of the Victorian era. There's so yeah. much of it around. And I think Christmas, the reason I think I always think more about it at Christmas is because a lot of the kind of Christmas specials that you get mm-hmm. on TV or like advertising around Christmas, even if it's for chocolates or something, a lot of it comes with this kind of rose-tinted imperial yeah. um, view. Definitely. And that kind of, you know... It's not just Victorian as well, it's kind of the Edwardian musical tradition. And oh, yes. and also actually the Second World War. Mm. The Second World War has a really interesting place in British imagined history. Mm. And it actually encapsulates that that paradox of Britain. On one hand, we think about the Second World War in that moment in 1940 when France falls to the Nazis. That's Britain standing alone, mm. right? That, that's the moment that Britain stood alone. America hasn't entered the war yet. Britain's allies have fallen. This is like plucky Britain who who kind of stands up against Germany. But there's a really um, a really famous uh, David Lowe cartoon from, from 1940, which um, has makes the point, it shows two, kind of two squaddies sitting on the white cliffs of Dover looking over to France, and, and one of them sort of says, you know, alone, and, and the other one says, yeah, you know, us and 500 million of us. Mm. Like, Britain was never alone at that point. Britain had an empire that it had mobilised, um, sometimes forcibly mobilised, to, to fight the war with it and actually you know the British Empire made huge sacrifices and the Empire contribution to the Second World War is, is really unremembered in Britain mm. you know, two and a half million Indian troops fought in the Second World War 
in the middle of the Second World War in India, there was a Bengal famine in 1943, and you know Churchill deliberately diverted grain from India to feed British soldiers and to feed Britain and 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 let the Bengali people starve. So like, there's a huge imperial contribution to the war. An enormous sacrifice. Yeah, and you know Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the Caribbean, Britain's African colonies, Britain's Asian colonies. Mm. You know Singapore is captured by the Japanese. Um, Australia makes a huge military contribution. The north of Australia is bombed during the Second World War, which a lot of British people, I think, don't know about. Mm. Um, and actually, the sort of the sort of Christmas nostalgia stuff, often the kind of Second World War features in that as well. Mm. Right, it's Empire and Second World War were the two moments mm. that we're supposed to be that people in Britain have are supposed to be proud of. I think. It's supposed to bring us together, yes. I suppose. And that, you know, there's a whole there's a whole narrative about the Second World War, about the People's War, and about people kind of pulling together mm. and being unified by the Second World War. And you know, and it's not true. And there are lots of different historians who've shown how divided the British population was. We'll put some links to yes. some of that work on our footnotes for this episode. But I think you know there are certain political persuasions in Britain. I think te- you know that tend to be on the right, tend to be in the Conservative Party and, and UKIP, who feel really angry. If, if other British people don't feel proud of both the Second World War and the Empire. Mm. It's a really emotional pride that they feel in this. Mm. And that sense that you said about... Um, there seems to be the sense in Britain that Britain had a better empire than other places, mm. right? That Britain was, was more humane. Yeah. And that goes for decolonisation as well. Yeah. There's a sense in Britain, I think, that, you know, Britain... When Britain decolonised, they did so because they had decided that the countries needed their independence because they agreed with the independence movement. So there's no sense of Britain having to be forced to give up power. There's it, It's very paternalistic. You know, the countries had finally proven that they could govern themselves mm. and so Britain hands over power. Or, or kind of, as, as an alternative reading, that that these countries since becoming independent have to, have shown why it was important to be colonies. Mm. There's a there's a weird reading now of like, you know, oh, there's corruption in African unnamed African countries and that shows why these people shouldn't be allowed to govern themselves or whatever. Mm. So it's yeah, that kind of I don't know, those sort of feelings about about why why the Empire was special. Or, yeah. Or like how it what it brought to the world. Mm. And you often hear, one of the, the things you quite often hear from that corner of um, of pol- politicians or people who support those politicians is, well, you know, the railroads in India. Oh God, the railways in India. You can't have, you can't talk about empire. Without you can't, you can't be critical of empire without, without talking about the railways. You know, the railways, the railways are built by the British so they can more effectively economically exploit its colonies. As yes, a, I know, think one point to make here is that they're all going into port cities, yes. right? Know, they're not—they're not meant to transport Indian no. people across the continent and making making the subcontinent smaller. It's meant to extract. This yeah. is like an extreme extraction exactly. economy. And as Alan Lester, Alan Lester wrote a really great piece for the Conversation website, um, really brilliant piece that I have linked on my Twitter um, about empire. At which he pointed out that, you know, black and brown people were not allowed to ride the railways. Mm. In fact, Gandhi, you know, one of the ways in which Gandhi was politicised was when he travels to South Africa and he's thrown off a, a railway mm. because it's for whites only. Mm. So the idea that, you know, we brought the railways, we brought the railways and Christianity. And these yeah. are the things that we took around the world. Both, you know, not at all problematic or controversial. These are the contributions that we made to the world through the empire. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's not helped by the fact that in Britain, the level of... 
kind of school education about empire is extremely spotty. Mm. So you mentioned the the um, the slave trade, the abolition of the slave trade. So people in Britain do have to learn about slavery. That's one of the things you have to learn. I think you have to learn about slavery, the Holocaust, and the First World War. They're the things that like everyone has to do. Mm. One of the problems in Britain is that you stop you stop having mandatory history lessons of, uh, at fourteen. So actually, you have to do all of this stuff quite early when people are quite young. But also, the slavery. Like basically, everyone just learns about the abolition of the slave trade, yeah, rather than learning about the slave trade. So, so again, like British people will often kind of proudly tell you that Britain abolished the slave trade, and the the Royal Navy was used to police the abolition of the slave trade. And and like the kind of really obvious point is that of course Britain abolished the slave trade because Britain was the biggest, yeah, like there's a reason trader in the slave trade. Yeah, of course, exactly. And also, right? really importantly, the abolition of the slave trade didn't wasn't the same as abolition of slavery. No. Slavery continued and even the abolition of slavery was you know followed by years of some sort of indentured labor yeah, which exactly. was seen as an apprenticeship in which enslaved formerly enslaved people had to continue working for the people who had previously owned them but were now their employers exactly i mean the only people abolished and this is a really other important thing that i've just thought (laughs) but the uh, slave trade legacy database at the ucl which kind of really shows that this is up until the 2008 bank bailouts yeah that was the most amount of money that the british state has spent on bailing people out and that Mm. was bailing out Britain slave owners who all got paid enormous amounts of compensation for losing their own people yeah British slave British slave holders in 1833 when slavery was abolished in the Caribbean British slave owners had to be bribed to abolish slavery you know they were they were compensated the slaves weren't compensated for the years of labor that they had given for free the slaves had to work on apprenticeships. Mm. Um, I was doing inverted commas there. You can't see them on the podcast, <laughs> obviously. But they had to work in apprenticeship to learn how to work, as if slavery doesn't teach you how to work. The only people abolished by the Abolition of Slavery Act were, were children under the age of six, mm. which also says something horrific about who was being forced to work in the first place, if children under the age of six could be freed. Yeah. And as you said, the, Le- the Legacies of British Slavery Project, which we'll put a link to on on the show notes because it's a really fascinating project even if you're not a historian of empire um what they did what what they did at ucl and under Catherine hall was trace how this money had been spent you know all of these slave owners um at least partially lived in britain and they took this money and they did various things with it and you can trace who people uh where people spent their money you know there are they organized things like walks around bloomsbury where they could point out properties that were built with slave money Mm. um there was when the news story uh kind of broke about it when they did the media launch for it um there was lots of excitement about the fact that like i think one you know samantha cameron's ancestors had owned slaves benedict cumberbatch Mm. so one of the interesting names to put into the um the database because it's such an unusual name is cumberbatch Mm. and you can trace that back to to slave owning if you have any unusual surname or you come from an unusual area i don't know like northern wales or something then it's definitely a good database if your surname is smith you might find it more difficult to identify your actual um, slave owning ancestors ancestors. but if you have a slightly unusual surname you could Mm -hmm. you know end up with the bad luck of having to (laughs) i mean there was i remember the daily mail getting very excited because um eric blair so george orwell's Mm. family had owned slaves and then you know they took this as this sort of i don't know they sort of undermines 
all well because yeah. his ancestors owned slaves. You know, and and of course the LBA, the Le- the London, uh, the Legacies of British Slavery project, they weren't trying to kind of uncover this in order to attack people for this heritage. They're not trying to blame people for this heritage. They're just trying to highlight that so much British industry and architecture and uh, kind of cultural legacies are, are built on money from, from slavery. And I think one of the really fascinating insights from that project is that we also have a tendency of believing that slave owners were these extreme capitalists, mm-hmm. you know, really wealthy people who owned massive plantations and were incredibly exploitative, when in reality a lot of the people who were reimbursed for having, you know, losing their slaves mm-hmm. um owned like two or three people yeah some of them they had in inher- you know people had inherited them there were a lot of women who were slave mm-hmm. owners and compensated um a lot of middle class people yeah. and i think you know predominantly we are led to believe maybe by pop- popular culture that slave owners were like higher aristocracy mm-hmm. or something when in reality slavery has propped up british cultural institutions it's propped up the British middle classes. It, it has in some ways made the middle classes because yeah. it's given, you know, the, all of this free labour working, you know, the sugar fields. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just an incredibly, um, you know, exploitative but very lucrative way of making money. Of course, and it's, it's deeply... And this is, I think this is one of the things about empire generally, that when we talk about imperial nostalgia... Part of what we're talking about is just a recognition or a kind of a what I would like to see is more recognition of the ways in which empire is so embedded in British history. Mm. Um, like one of the things that the sociologist Gaminda Bambra has pointed out is that when we talk about the British Empire, we tend to think of it as being separate to Britain, mm. but you know it's Britain and its empire. But in fact, actually, you know Britain and its empire are not only kind of mutually constituted but legally, the same and you know until 1962 uh when the with one of the first kind of which is when some of the first um immigration laws are passed that limit migration from the empire until 19 from 1948 until 1962 legally anybody from the empire can live in britain and vice versa there's only one state of nationality within the empire Mm. and prior to 1948 you know there had been huge kind of different pathways of migration around the empire based on you know class and privilege and and also kind of forced migration like slavery and indentured mm. labor but we tend to think of it about sort of britain and the empire and even people who don't want to think about the empire in these terms of rose-tinted ways even people who don't want to be kind of overly positive about empire often are quite ignorant about how embedded imperialism is in british history mm. and how you know the british economy the industrial revolution uh britain's sort of victory in the first and second world war you know all of these things are are really really kind of shot through with mm. imperial history and then there's not really very much even among people who are generally kind of well-meaning and, and, and want to think about critically about britain's history mm. often don't really understand or acknowledge that um what can be done to prevent that though <laughs> i don't know and this is something that i've kind of come up against a lot because i, I think often i think on one hand, you think, okay, well, this is about education and about spreading messages. And then on the other hand, I think there is a kind of... There's a level to which some of this is intentional ignorance. Mm. It's... And, and, like, at every level of society, I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, there are groups of people who are ignorant about Britain's past. I'm saying that Britain itself is sort of intentionally ignorant. Yeah. And there's a kind of... 
ignorance and like profess, professing professing uh, innocence as well and it, in the kind of the way that the media talk about british identity yeah and things i think it's a difficult topic to really um get on top of because it's partly to do with people's um identities it's also to do with the kind of national national myths i suppose mm-hmm. Um, that every country tells itself. Yeah. I mean, in Sweden, exactly. people focus instead on and are nostalgic for the era of the people's home, which is from mm-hmm. like the 1930s until the 50s, and when Sweden was really kind of came together as a, as a an un- industrializing country for the first time, and kind of went from being incredibly poor to being mm-hmm. an incredibly wealthy nation, kind of sitting out the Second World War. Yeah. Um, so the, the Second World War is important for Swedish history as well, and Swedish identity, but in a very different way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but it's also partly difficult because it's one of those topics that we are not necessarily individually connected to in that way it's mm-hmm. like when people talk talk about slavery reparations for example there's always an idea that those of us who are alive now mm-hmm. haven't caused the problem mm-hmm. and i think part of that comes into this kind of imperial nostalgia or the refusal to recognize the extreme violence mm-hmm. um, and coercion within the empire yeah uh, and that's how the empire became an empire. It's it's not through some sort of nice negotiations in a tent somewhere. It's always done with yeah. Britain having the power to use excessive force if it mm-hmm. needed to, and then threatening to use excessive force yeah. when it didn't need to. I mean, the process of imperial rule is a process of continual violence. Yeah. Um, like both both kind of violence and and also different different types of violence, cultural violence, political violence, as well as like kind of military. the violence of the military. I think also one of the other things that's important for the way that we think about empire is, of course, again, like people who are nostalgic for imperialism tend to imagine Britain in a certain way. And that's sort of a white, uh, tends to be a kind of white, uh, maybe pastoral Britain, Um, Mm. but certainly a a sense of Britain as, as being kind of frozen in a particular moment and they ignore the very diverse experiences and yeah. they, they ignore basically ignore multiculturalism in Britain mm. so there's this sense that you know you know what does imperial nostalgia look like for a multicultural nation a nation which has you know large amounts of migration from ex-imperial mm. nations you know who people who came to Britain both during imperialism and after imperialism often because of the violence of decolonization mm. Um, either you know, like the or the lack of, of opportunities that exactly. is a systemic issue within yeah. an empire that is geared towards creation, creating extraction, extraction economies. Yeah, it's a very difficult sentence to say. Um, and you know, like people coming to Britain from India and Pakistan during partition, mm. or during the um, the Bangladesh civil war, or you know, Kenyan Asians being um, expelled, or Ugandan Asians being expelled, or people coming from South Africa both during and after apartheid, or and the kind of wave of migration from the Caribbean from the end of the Second World War, you know, the kind of Windrush migration mm. is quite kind of historically often used as a historical example of migration. Yeah. Um, one of my kind of real bugbears around a lot of the Brexit coverage, which is a whole topic in imperial nostalgia, I think, but is that this kind of idea of a white working class was invoked a lot to explain yeah. a particular group of people in Britain who might be supportive of Brexit and, and kind of why they might be. The thing is about the white working class is it, they were often not really called the white working class, they were often just called the working class. Mm. And there was an assumption in, in much media coverage that working working class equals white. Yeah. Um, and that 
that people of colour are a kind of other that might be working class or middle class, mm. but that don't seem to really be kind of uh, aren't talked about in these these political groups. They seem to be seen as uh, a sort of guest worker category, mm. the way that Germany has, despite the fact that it, that's not the case in Britain, and many of them have you know generations yeah. in the country. There's, and there tends to be an assumption, like certainly around Brexit, and particularly after the Brexit vote, when when it was revealed that Britain had voted to leave. There were a lot of immediate responses. Like I, you know, I wrote a piece about um, Brexit and democracy mm. for, um, and I, you know, and, and I said, you know, one of the issues here is that it's a group of people who don't necessarily feel listened to, who've who've seen their living standard fall, who've seen um, kind of Britain get harder to live in, and they're voting, um, kind of making a sort of protest vote. They want their voices to be heard. They want something to change. They're railing against kind of the establishment and authority. Mm. And I think that's, you know, partly true. But what that narrative doesn't include is that actually it was the white working class voted for Brexit, but most areas, I mean, like Newham, where I live, which is uh, majority not white, voted Remain. Mm. Um, and that there tends to be an assumption that working class people are white and also kind of racist. Mm. Um, in the area that I grew up in, in the Fens in South Lincolnshire, those people's concerns tend to be ignored, apart from when they're useful for politicians. Mm. So those people's concerns about, you know, um, living standards or the economy or the future of Britain or whatever, they're, they're not deemed important, apart from when they can be used to make a wider political point. Yeah. And one of the ways in which the people where I grew up were kind of used during Brexit was to say, look, this is the working class voice and these working class people are you know, anti-immigrant and they want to leave the EU and they're upset about migration. Mm. And and that's, you know, that's depicting the working classes as being this particular group of white people. And and the sort of the the voices of working class people of colour are just completely ignored. Yeah. Um and that's you know, that's also a way of just failing to deal with what the reality you know, what, what Britain actually looks like today as as a post colonial state. And yeah. it's it's re it's reasserting those post colonial inequalities of privileging particular voices as well. Yeah, there's a there's a deep um thread of racism throughout <laughs> <laughs> throughout the whole conversation and I suppose imperial nostalgia both enables it and uh overlooks it. Mm-hmm. I mean there are people who are nostalgic about empire because of it not being a racist um, thing, which is a really quite a bizarre, you know, but you'll constantly hear that British uh, colonial officials collaborated mm-hmm. with yeah. local people in the colonies and you forget the dot, 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 because that was the easiest way of controlling these mm-hmm. nations or you know, areas. And that's another way of framing Britain's empire as better than other European empires as well. You know, oh, the French had a racist empire and the British didn't. Mm. Um, This, and you know, the British themselves, the British officials maintained that there was no colour bar in the empire. Mm. That was always part of the the myth about the British empire was that there were no colour. During the second world war, when um, American soldiers came over to Britain and were stationed in Britain and black GIs came over to Britain and the American forces wanted a colour bar to be um, put into kind of nightclubs and coffee houses and things. And kind of the, the popular myth about this is that the British government refused because the British government wasn't racist. But actually there were long discussions between Churchill and other people about whether this was something they should or should not do. Yeah. And whilst many British people really welcomed the black GIs, um, 
there's there's firstly there's a lot of anxiety about um kind of mixing between particularly between white women and black GIs mm. and there's a huge kind of anxiety about that and this is seen as being you know really problematic mm. but also there are plenty of business owners who are happy to institute a colour bar yeah um it, it's not this kind of Britain resisting the racist Americans at all and it's fascinating because in popular culture so you see um tv series that are set during uh, the world war Mm-hmm. You quite often will encounter like the American black American soldier mm-hmm. being given, you know, being supported by the local British yeah. men when he's being thrown out of a pump or something. Yeah, as though, uh, you know, they people didn't find racism as yeah. you know as closely as um, the Americans did, and that it's not it's racism isn't British. Yeah, and racism a is a foreign thing. There's a real sense in it, sort of you know the. Things that, like, Michael Gove, when he was Education Secretary, kind of care, we wanted schools to uh, inculcate British children in what he termed British values. Mm. Right? And it, this comes up a lot. Education Secretaries are really fond. Gordon Brown has, had a similar thing about this. You know, it's not just a Conservative thing. The idea that um, there are certain British values. Yeah. And these are seen as, what, tolerance, diversity... Democracy. Democracy, um, kind of liberal... Um, like kind of liberty to to think and um freedom of thought freedom of speech these sorts of things yeah. but but kind of within that this sense of tolerance and kind of and charity and humanitarianism are also seen as being inherently british and obviously that it's not true it's it, i find it really fascinating because those are things that um i have a child who's in a nursery and they you know are mandated kind mm-hmm. of they have to teach british values yeah. and this is what they that comes in under the same, exactly the same values are being taught to my um, Swedish relatives who yeah. are in Swedish nurseries, only it's detached from Swedish values. Mm. They're just like democratic values. We learn to listen to each other. We learn to um, have different opinions and we mm-hmm. learn to learn to like communicate difference and, and make decisions together and stuff. Yeah. Whereas here, there's like a labelling of that being a British yeah. trait. <laughs> and which is obviously, you know, obviously problematic for two reasons. Firstly, like as you say like most countries ascribe to some set of these values yeah like most countries would like to think that they are tolerant democratic you know or you know certainly a, a large number of countries like to think that these are values that sit with their mm. national characteristics but that also you know britain falls short of these values all the time if we're mm. going to claim that our values are about tolerance and diversity then you know why is there such a huge attainment gap between white and black school children or mm. why is there such a problem you know why are uh, black boys stop and searched so much more than, than yeah. white kids like it, it's just ridiculous to claim that we are that, that, that you know anti-racism is a British value of course it's not like Britain is institutionally racist it's also fascinating another um, example from popular culture is the um, called the midwife special mm-hmm. Christmas special from last year so 2016 rather than 2017 I haven't seen the 2017 yeah. Christmas special but that the 2016 one was set in South Africa so I did watch that oh my God, was it? <laughs> yeah so I have a particular uh, interest in seeing it and it, it's fascinating so they are I haven't seen it now for a while so I might be getting some of the um, details wrong but anyway that these midwives who are normally based in East London are sent to South Africa because some connection that the order of nuns that they mm-hmm. work for have in South Africa and there's a countryside clinic that needs help okay 
So they pack up these four or five British with midwives and the priest mm-hmm. and they go, <laughs> go to South Africa. Um, and they immediately encounter hostility from the white South African authorities. Mm-hmm. So they are stopped and searched and they are, you know, the, the, their mission to go and help um, black South Africans in the countryside is deemed as very suspicious. Mm-hmm. And they shouldn't be. And the, so we con- we see these white British midwives encountering South African racism and the institutionalised South African racism that apartheid was. Mm-hmm. But in a very detached sense, it's sort of automatically assumed that they are on the side of the black South Africans and that they are outraged by Mm -hmm. racist structures, which, you know, could very well be the case. They then come to this clinic in the countryside of South Africa, which incidentally is led by a white British female doctor. But, you know, white British, that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily the case in South Africa in that era, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, it's not like there weren't any black South African doctors to mm-hmm. like run clinics, but so you have like this white savior complex coming in yeah. and like, you know, the mission, but part of the mission is to help these uh, black South African women deliver their babies safely. Yeah. Other part of the mission is to kind of support them within the structures of the institutional racism. That is the apartheid system. Mm-hmm. Never ever is it mentioned or even alluded to that apartheid is a system inherited from the British Empire and that the laws that the 1948 apartheid laws built on Mm -hmm. date from the Victorian British Mm -hmm. Empire um, which with particular emphasis on the Cape colonies Mm -hmm. within South Africa and you know that black South Africans lost their right to vote Mm -hmm. predominantly during the era that it still belonged to the British Empire so it's it's a fascinating because it's you know this is a, an enormously popular country, uh, enormously popular uh, TV series. Mm-hmm. I think it's like estimated the one in seven yeah. British people watch it. <laughs> Christmas TV programming is very you know people sit down yeah. and actually watch it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it would have been a good opportunity to address some of those issues. I realise it's not like easily digested popular culture, but I also but don't think it's impossible because we have had over the past year, TV series and documentaries about black presence in Britain from yeah, the Roman I mean, era. And from... like David Odesuga's work in particular. Exactly. Which, is, which has been really kind of good at uncovering those things. And yeah. he had previously done work with the, with the um, British Slavery Legacies Project yeah. as well. Yeah, and it's that book, The Black Tudors as well. Which yes, I can't... Um, Miranda Kaufman's book. Yeah. yeah. I mean, also one of the things about that is they could have just not chosen not to have a special set in South Africa as well. Like, if they didn't want to engage with... Yeah. that big imperial question you know actually you know there, there's no way in which these east end midwives that it would have been a loss or that mm. people would have sort of seen it as being an obvious problem. i find it particularly fascinating because south africa is now one of those countries that people go and do filming in and part mm-hmm. of that is because south africa has a diverse population yes so south africa stood in for afghanistan in the third season of homeland or fourth season of homeland because it has members of its communities that yeah. look as though they might be Afga- Afghani rather than South African. But, I mean, that in itself is because of these legacies of... Mm-hmm. I mean, South Africa has been um, under the rule of two empires. It yeah. started with the Dutch and then the British took over. There's been slavery and indentured labour throughout. Um, so it has very diverse population, but that is in itself because of empires. 
and competing empires. Mm-hmm. So it's I find it really fascinating. It's an incredibly um, picturesque and scenic, lovely country. There's another, the last post, which was on the BBC before Christmas mm-hmm. in the autumn, yeah. is supposedly set in Yemen, but it's also filmed it's in South there. Africa. I was thinking about Channel 4, a couple of years ago when I taught more imperial history, they had their Indian Summer mm. uh, programme, which some of my students watched uh, whilst, whilst doing a course largely on imperial nostalgia and British uh, colonial culture. Um, and then recently there was the Victoria and Abdul, was it? Oh, the yes. film um, about uh, Victoria's relationship with this Indian man, a much, much kind of speculated relationship with this, with this man, and which is which is always framed through kind of white humanitarianism and kind of Christian connections and the connections of empire and and is never framed through coercion or exploitation. Yeah, it's framed through this relationship, the personal relationship that yes. Queen Victoria had with one of the people who worked for her. Mm-hmm. And never is it mentioned that she was also the Empress of India yeah. during a time when there was enormous repression to pay for the Indian mutiny, which happened right before she became the empress. It's, um... I mean, it's... Deeply problematic. Yeah. For those of us who work in this business, it's quite interesting, because we get to see how identities develop and what people prefer to think, Mm -hmm. and, you know, what we choose to believe in and what we choose to see when we watch these things. But it's also quite relentless. It's also, I mean... I think once you start looking for imperial nostalgia and for echoes of empire in British contemporary politics, it's everywhere. I mean, like, Britain's relationship with islands, mm. and, and, and particularly Britain's... British people, by which I mean English people's... <laughs> English people's inability to understand, for example, the difference between Northern and Southern Ireland, Northern mm. Ireland and the Republic. Like, that... Just, just this sense of, you know, that literally... I have, you know, friends from Northern Ireland and the Republic who both say that they've sort of had encounters with, with English people who've asked where they're from in Ireland and then have asked things like, you know, is that the bit we own? Um, <laughs> and, and, like, a complete uh, a complete inability to understand, like, sectarian violence in Ireland or to understand what the roots of that might be. Mm. And, you know, that, that's an imperial legacy. That's something that goes, that's, that goes back to Britain's, you know, further back into Britain's imperial past. Mm. Um, but the presence of those... The, the presence of Ireland with it... And, you know, and this has kind of come into more into the public eye both with the role of the DUP um, being more kind of highlighted because of Theresa May's now reliance on DUP MPs Mm. to have a proper majority in Parliament but also actually because again Jeremy Corbyn having had connections supposed connections with the IRA Mm. during the 70s and so this has kind of come back into British politics a lot Mm. and and I think I don't I think even British people who know quite a lot um, or English people Scottish Welsh people who know quite a lot about Irish history might also be quite taken aback to hear about it as a colonial history as well. Mm. Um, that there's just not, I don't know, I feel like a lot of these, there's just not a huge amount of reflection about Britain's relationship to people around the world and, and how this is kind of historically framed. But then, And how much of that relationship was built on gunpowder yes, ra- exactly, rather than democratic... Um, parliamentary beliefs and Britain's not alone in this I mean, Britain has a fictitious past all, all countries have a fictitious path and all, that past and all countries are built on myth that's yeah. that's how you create a nation that's how mm. national identity is forged 
nations are imagined mm. they're not real um and you need to have a history that's sort of broadly cohesive for a majority of people within the nation or mm. a story you can tell about the past yeah that kind of brings people together and i think it is things like brexit therefore kind of highlight the the fractures and the insecurities in this past because it highlights like the moments that people are being left out of Mm. the the voices that aren't being kind of heard it highlights the moments that people kind of look at and go well hang on that doesn't quite make sense or I don't really agree with that or like my family didn't do this and Mm. and those kind of they come to a head around things like things like Brexit yeah do you have a poem I do have a poem, actually. Um, I say I sound surprised, as if this is something I don't have to read. Um, my poem about uh, improving nostalgia is uh, a poem by uh, Mel Collins uh, called "When Britain Had Its Great," um, which is a great poem. Uh, so it starts, "Put the great back into Britain, and my great 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 grandparents' ghostly hands touch my face." Um, and it finishes, "And you would you then be part of the great British nation too when Britain regains its great?" And this is the idea about putting great... Before before Trump had Make America Great Again, Britain had uh, put the great back into Great Britain. Mm. And actually quite recently, and I think actually still, the Foreign Office ran a... The, the Foreign Office uh, or the Department of... I don't even know what department... We don't have a Department of Tourism. The, the, <laughs> there is a, there's a British government campaign which is about Great Britain. Mm. And all of these posters have great in capital letters... And it's like great Britain, British industry, great British fashion, great British countryside. And it's ways of highlighting kind of things about Britain that we should be proud of, mm. aimed at an international market. And whenever I see those posters, I hear, I hear like Mel Collins talking about putting the great back into Great Britain. Um, and this post-imperial com- context, like what does it actually yeah. mean for multicultural communities in Britain mm. to be constantly told that we need to put the great back in? what yeah. you're doing when you say that yeah you're talking about a past in which a lot of us aren't present mm-hmm. absolutely and some of us are enslaved uh and on that cheery note we should probably do our recommendations for this week yeah so we're going to be recommending books that we have started to read but haven't finished yeah. as no. a sort of way to start 2018 yes and this isn't books that we've abandoned it's just books that we have started and are enjoying but haven't got to the end of yet. Exactly. So we take no responsibility for if they go completely wrong in the last third, maybe? Yes. Uh, the book I'm going to recommend is Sadie Smith's Wing Time, mm-hmm. which is excellent. I mean, all Sadie Smith books are excellent, I think, but I think she is also getting better and better mm-hmm. uh, with time. I really love On Beauty and um, mm. NW, which I like to call end-ups. Um, and no one ever knows which whatever I'm talking about. But... Um, Yes, Swing Time is a kind of um, coming-of-age story mm-hmm. in London and globally. There's a international musical superstar who seems to be a kind of mix of Kylie Minogue and Madonna hmm. at the centre of it, as, as well as two girls who grow up in northwest London. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I am about two-thirds in, I think, so I'm looking forward to the rest of the third. Absolutely no spoilers. <laughs> And how about you? Um, my recommendation is a book called How Should a Person Be by Sheila Hetty. Uh, so it's sort of, I think it's basically autobiographical, 
Um, but again, with the kind of proviso from the Nora Ephron book, I recommended a couple of episodes of that ago, which is that women's writing is always assumed to be autobiographical and men's writing isn't. But poor um, women, we just don't have enough imagination to exactly. write we outside of ourselves. We don't have the emotional hinterland to draw on. No, it's I mean, true. It's true. the main character in this is called Sheila. It's about a marriage that broke up in exactly the same way that the author's marriage broke up. Mm. And it involves, it includes like real emails and transcripts of conversations she has with friends. So it definitely is like at least semi-autobiographical. <laughs> um, Inspired been, by real events. Yes, I've been really enjoying it. I have occasionally, I've been kind of screen grabbing, taking photographs of the page and tweeting bits of it because bits of it are a little bit too true to life um and a bit that i read recently that i really enjoyed she's talking about how she has a feeling like everyone else knows how to think and that she doesn't and everyone else can think seriously and properly about things and she just doesn't really have kind of thoughts or ideas which i kind of empathized with so yes again i'm about two-thirds of the way through okay so it's not even a very thick book it's it's about half the length of swing time so i have no excuse for not having finished it but i am enjoying it you just need a bit more free time yes exactly i need to get on my reading my new year's resolution yeah and finish it on that note we should probably end here and so you can get back to that book so um we are always looking for you to get in touch with us and we're always really enjoying conversations that we have with you on twitter in particular which i Mm -hmm. suppose is our biggest thing uh we are at tnk pod um on twitter and on facebook we also have a newsletter that tends to go out around the days that this the new episodes are um released Mm -hmm which we fill with footnotes. Yes. Other podcasts call them show notes. We call them footnotes because we're historians. Um, So sign up to all of those. Get in touch if you have anything to say to us, any suggestions for future episodes, any encounters with imperial nostalgia that Mm -hmm. we should know about. Yeah, I'm pretty sure there'll be a second issue on imperial nostalgia at some point. Definitely. We also want to thank all of you who got in touch with us to tell us which Madman characters you were over Christmas there were quite a lot of Joan Harris's out there yeah which is which as I said is you know I am in awe there were also Definitely. an alarming number of Roger Sterling's and, and I feel like I'm still the only Donald Draper <laughs> and I have to say that I redid the test with different answers I think and you're still I Donald thought Draper. I was still Donald Draper so yes I might have to go and live in a commune in Los Angeles mm-hmm. before the next episode and write a new coke ad um, but we'll be back very soon with more episodes. Yes. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.